We finished Judges. Pastor Mike finished Judges last week. If you know your Bible, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Um, we're going from Judges to Samuel. Not because Ruth doesn't count, but because what I want to do is take us through the Old Testament in the order that the Jews structured their Bible. So they have the exact same books we have. They simply have them in a different order. Um, if you're curious, I, I think on the B side, I'll do a little bit more on this. But essentially, our Bibles are um, ordered by genre. So the prophets are all clumped together. The poetries are all clumped together. The historical books are all clumped together. But the Jews had a very intentional um, design in which there's a story and then it stops, and then they have a lot of commentary through prophets and poets, and then it stops, and then the um, story picks back up and ends the Old Testament. And by word count, it's almost exactly the same between story, commentary, and story, that there's almost the same exact number of words of storytelling and commentary. And so the Jews really have this thing balanced and spaced well. So all that to say, Ruth is much later in their order. They put it in the back side of the story side. And the reason for that, I think, will become evident a little bit later. But an example is that Israel is about to go through, as we start Samuel, um, we are going to go from Samuel to Kings. Samuel and Kings were considered one work in the Jewish mind. So we have 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. Those four are just one work to the Jewish mind. It's the beginning of the kingdom of Israel um, from the anointing of Saul all the way to their collapse, their kingdom's collapse when the Babylonians come and sack Jerusalem. So it's the rise and fall of the kingdom. Um, so after the kingdom falls, you have all of these poems and these prophets. And then you come back to the storyline with Nehemiah and Daniel and what's going on when they're coming back from exile, right? Um, and Ruth is in that section over toward the end. Why? Because Israel's kicked out of Jerusalem and they go in a faraway land and then they have to come back. And when they come back, God and the prophets are promising that he will eventually bless them twofold. So Ruth is someone, uh, it's a story about a Jewish family that has to leave their land, go into the pagan outside land, and eventually come back, and then they will be uh, restored and blessed again. And so Ruth is meant to be a story about what Israel's going through. So they put it at the end because it becomes really powerful mini story of the whole story there. Uh, same thing with Job. Job's at the end, toward the end as well. Because Job's the same thing. A guy who suffers and loses a lot, but is restored to double in the end. Um, anyways, that's why we're doing that. I think it would be great to look at the, the Hebrews outline, because they had a message and they knew what they were doing with it. And it's very possible that Jesus um, would have read the Bible in this order. Although we cannot be 100% certain. But there you have it. Shall we, Samuel? Tonight, the poured out soul. I'm going to look at the poured out soul. You think that Judges ended poorly. Who was here last week as Pastor Mike closed out the book of Judges? Uh, if the, the book itself was pretty dark throughout, but it ended really dark. Um, with gang rape and civil war. And it was just, it's the kind of book you just, you go home like, we're glad that's over. Let's burn our clothes that we heard the book from and that. You just want a clean start. But, 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 but. Um, Judges ends with this echo. You might have heard it. And there was no king in those times, and everybody did whatever they wanted. 
And so Judges is anticipating this need that Israel wants a king. Israel needs a king, or they're going to fall into moral depravity. And Samuel then is the book where this gets answered. The king finally comes. So um, it doesn't start beautifully at first. They learn how to get a better king, but they're going to go in a better direction. And while Judges ends so poorly, Samuel is going to pick up on some of that dirt and gradually get purged of it. So I'm sorry, but Samuel's going to start off as just as dark as Judges. The darkness and the chaos of that book has seeped into Samuel. And as we open Samuel, we find that the chaos of Judges is gone so far that it's now creeped into the priesthood of Israel. The people that are supposed to be the purest and leading the nation, they have become corrupt themselves. That is how gross the kingless nation has become. And that's why they're yearning for a king in this book. So... What we open up with in this book is barrenness. First, we have a barren woman. Her name's Hannah. She can't have children. She's been trying to have children. Then we have a land barren of prophecy. It says that there was no prophet in the land. No one had frequent visions of God. His voice was not being heard. A barren woman. A barren, a land barren of the voice of God. Then we have barren character. The priesthood is corrupt. The sons of the high priest are sleeping with women who come to the temple, and they are robbing from the sacrifices of worshipers to eat what they want, and they are fat on the food. They're gluttons. They are abusing, they're using the temple of God to enrich and fatten themselves and have their own pleasure. So we have barren woman, we have a place barren of God's word, we have a priesthood barren of any morality, and what we realize as we come into this book of barrenness, it's not unlike us and our souls. Some of us come tonight with barren souls. If we were to open up the inner landscape of our soul, it would be barren. You might be a cactus here or there, but it's dry. It's not very fruitful. We're in a place that's too wide open and there's no barriers. There's no boundaries. There's no points of context. It's dusty. It's hot. Everyone relates to the hot lately, right? It's just miserable. Sometimes we're in a place where we don't feel like we're at home. And and no matter what's happening outside, inside doesn't feel good, which makes everything outside feel just as horrible. And there's seasons when we have barrenness. It doesn't mean you are a horrible Christian if you're in a barren place. There sometimes are seasons where things just aren't growing and you feel dry. The psalmist (laughs) cries out, my God, I am like a dry and weary land and I thirst for you. Sometimes we're in these places. So as we open Samuel, there's barrenness in many ways. And we tonight want to examine our souls and see, are we barren? And would we like the reins of God's spirit to come upon us? Would we like the grace to flow? And would we like some more fruitfulness? Where are we? Now, this barrenness is going to get solved. Hannah is going to have a son. You're going to see that. Um, prophecy is going to return. Um, and the character of the priesthood is going to be restored. Why don't you look with me at chapter 3, and we'll go back to chapter 1. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the young man, Samuel, 
was ministering to Yahweh under Eli. Eli is the high priest. And the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, so note that, there's no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, note that, the the writer here is being intentional, so the high priest is losing his vision, and this is more than physical. There are there's nobody getting a vision of the Lord in the land. The high priest is losing his eyesight. There's a there's an intentional connection here. And then third, he's lying down in his own place. And verse three, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. So there's this threefold things are dimming, things are going blind, there's a barrenness. No prophet seeing visions of God, hearing his word, Eli's losing his eyesight, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because the lamp, of course, is the lamp stand, right? It's that seven-branched candle inside the tabernacle, inside Israel's temple. And God commanded that it never went out, that it was to be perpetually burning, and that it was the priest's job to keep pouring olive oil into the little the cups that held the oil for the wickers to burn. Um, It was to never go out. It was to always be burning. And yet here we're reading that the lamp of God had not yet gone out as if they didn't intend to keep it burning all night. That there was just a time they said, eh, we'll fix it in the morning. And they went to bed. This is this is all playing on this fact that this is a dark time in Israel where God's voice is not really reverberating in people's hearts. But then. Verse 19 Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, that's where the tabernacle is at that time, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 1. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So now there you have this threefold answer to the darkening blindness, the barrenness of God's presence is Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel's hearing God's word. God's not letting Samuel's words fall to the ground. All of Israel is hearing the word of God through Samuel. The barrenness is coming to an end through this prophet Samuel. So we open in darkness. No one's hearing the word of God. Now all of a sudden the book's moving forward. There's a prophet and he's speaking. There was a woman who was barren and didn't have any children. Guess who answered her prayer? Well, God, guess who was the answer to her prayer? Samuel was the baby she prayed for. And the priesthood, this is totally corrupt. It's Samuel who receives a vision of their demise and prophesies, both your sons, Eli, are going to die in a single day. And they die in a single day. And Eli dies by falling over backward and snapping his neck when he hears that his sons died in battle. The priesthood is wiped out. The corrupt part. And now there's a fresh start. So we open with barrenness, but we have a God, as we're going to see in Samuel, we have a God who does not let things remain barren. He's a creating God who created the world, and he has to. It's just the part of his nature to see a vacuum and say, I need to fill that with life. There can't be darkness and death here. I need light and I need life. I'm going to just move in and bring it there. And so to those who open themselves up, 
who don't hide their barrenness and say, stay away, God, but open that up to him. He will move in and bring a new creation. As Isaiah prophesies and says, there is going to be a day when even the deserts flow with rivers of water. Streams will flow in the deserts. And the Garden of Eden will bloom across the barren wastelands. That's the prophetic vision. That's what our God does. So we open with barrenness. Samuel is God's answer to all of this. He brings his word through a person, a prophet, which breaks out of the tabernacle building. How does Samuel come into being? How does God, we see that God uses Samuel to turn barrenness into fruitfulness, but how does Samuel come? How does this transition happen? How does the, how do they, how does God come into the scene and create? Through one desperate woman's prayer. That's where we're going to now look. So Samuel chapter one. One verse one. There was a certain man of Ramathium Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu. I, I, I sometimes I think that the biblical writers are just laughing, thinking one day an American's going to be reading these and just die in front of a bunch of people. Um, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, son of uh, an, Ephrath, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. Not actually incredibly uncommon in the ancient days to have more than one wife. Um, there were there were reasons for that. Sometimes a woman, there were more women in a in a town than there were men. And in order to give every daughter a place to live and be taken care of, you had to marry somebody. It's how the world worked then. So sometimes you would marry someone to someone who already had a wife, just so they could be taken care of. Sometimes if you were um, a society that raised sheep, you needed extra hands and you needed extra children, and so you would uh, marry a couple and you would have lots of babies. Um, of course, now that things are different, we would consider it immoral to marry more than one person, but God permitted it in those times. But that uh, that, that gradually changed, right? But so there's a man who has two wives. Now, you should know that there's just going to be problems with that. Like, this is setting the stage. I feel like I should just keep going. I don't know what's going on. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And that's a problem. So today... People choose not to have kids. That's, that's just, that's a luxury we have. Do you want kids? Do you not? Back then, you needed kids. You needed your family line to continue. You needed people to pick up the work. You needed helpers to, to make a livelihood. And it, it was a women's job in the ancient times. It was their job to bear children for their husband. That's why they got married. And to raise children for their husband. That Hannah has no children means she is fundamentally failing at her existence in her community. So there is a lot of social shame. There's a lot of I'm not good enough going on here. Furthermore, this is a problem because children were, as a woman, they were your social security. We pay into social security today. But then your children were your social social security. When you got old and couldn't take care of yourself, it was your kids who would take care of you. If she has no children, she's at the mercy of anyone else who may be kind enough to take her in or help her. And of course, status, social status. If a woman was meant to bear children, then the number of children you have is equivalent to the number of zeros in your salary in America's status. 
and she's got zero. She's got no status. She's at the bottom of the totem pole. She's in a bad place. Verse 3. Now, this man used, remember his name's Elkanah. This man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to Yahweh of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, don't they just sound like corrupt priests? If you ever go to church, I'm Hophni, just leave. <laughs> I'm really sorry if there is actually someone named that, but a priest, I mean. Um, the priests of Yahweh. On that day, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though Yahweh had closed her womb. Okay, so at least she's getting some support from her husband, right? And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Her rival, of course, is the other wife, Peniah. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of Yahweh, she used to provoke her. Hey, Hannah, I can't seem to find one of my kids. I have so many. Can you help me? Ooh, ouch, you know? Oh, you have nothing to do, right? You have no kids to watch. Can you watch my 15 right now? I just want a mom day, a me day. You can practice being a mom if you'll ever be one. Uh, you know, things are just going on. And Hannah's just, oh, it's being, daggers are being pierced into her over and over. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, now, now Elkanah's not helping either. Listen to what he says. Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Classic guy answer, right? Am I not just awesome or what? He's not even sympathizing, right? There's no empathy here. There's not even sympathy here. He's just like, why are you upset? It's not a big deal. I'm in your life, duh. So, what would you call the other wife? Like your wife-in-law? I don't know, but um, Paniah is irritating her. Her husband is not really helping. And verse 9, there's going to be more opposition to her. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of Yahweh. She was deeply distressed and prayed to Yahweh and wept bitterly. This is ugly cry, right? This is ugly prayer. And she vowed a vow and said, O Yahweh of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to Yahweh all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So that's the Nazarite vow. I will, I'll dedicate him to you. He will be special. He will be completely devoted to you. Please just give me a son. And she's, you know, right? She's, she's ugly praying this, ugly crying. Um, words are probably not making sense, but this is what her heart is praying. Um, and she, as she continued praying before Yahweh, Eli observed her mouth. Now he's just sitting there, right? He's the high priest. He's just sitting there watching this. And Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And that's the priesthood. How dare you come here like this? So, her opposite, Paniah, is 
plaguing her. Her husband isn't showing any sympathy. Now she goes for prayer and the high priest is thinking that she's just a rotten woman. She's got opposition after opposition, but she's going to keep going. She's going to keep pressing. She's desperate. So verse 14, um, Eli said to her, how long will you be drunk? But verse 15, Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before Yahweh. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Wow. Like, there are times when you're just sad, and we don't like being sad. These are some big words. I am I am speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. When's the last time you said that to somebody? Hey, how are you today? Oh, I'm speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. (laughs) These are just, these are deep emotions that we're not comfortable as Americans with expressing and feeling. We, we, humans shouldn't feel these things. Um, Hannah is not even afraid to tell the priest, like, this is where I am and this is what I'm feeling. And we see, obviously, up in verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed. Distressed. Do you remember who else was deeply distressed and prayed? And he was deeply distressed and sorrowful in spirit. And he told the disciples, watch and pray. And then he went to pray, right? Um, you remember how, by the way, on that note, how the Gospel of Luke opens up? A barren woman whose husband is in the temple praying. An angel says, hey, you will have a baby. And then Mary is visited by an angel, hey, you will have a baby. And Mary bursts into song in Luke 2. Guess what happens in 1 Samuel 2? Hannah is going to burst into song when she learns she has a baby. Do you, do you see what the gospel is doing, the gospel of Luke? It's, it's saying, hey, the king that comes in Samuel... Let's replay this. Let's start over the same way. Barrenness. And now there's fruitfulness. Even in a womb that never knew a man. And now there's the true king of kings. This is, Jesus is the do-over of this kingdom that failed here. The man, the emotions she's feeling. I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Well, that'll make a man, especially a man like Eli, feel dumb. So he answered, go in peace. Tail between the legs, right? Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. What? Most people I know who would ever admit that they're in great vexation and anxiety would not wash your face, eat, and are no longer sad. I talk to people, or actually I listen to them talk, when they're feeling these things, when they don't quite even admit those words, they don't just, oh, I'm over it now. It is weeks of, I don't want to do homework, I don't want to do anything, I'm going to Netflix and binge and eat and hide in my house. It seems that it takes Americans a lot longer to move on from these things. But Hannah's just like, that priest just called me a drunk. I explained that I'm in deep anxiety and vexation. He said, go in peace. I washed and ate and I'm good. We'll get back to that. 
They rose early in the morning, in verse 19, and worshipped before Yahweh. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and Yahweh remembered her. In other words, just to keep it G, they did something about her prayer. (laughs) That's a good lesson, though. Do something about your prayer. I've been praying for 15 years that... Well, what have you done? What do you mean? I'm just going to pray and make God do everything. Okay, but maybe prayer is where you start, and maybe then God's going to give you an invitation. to. You've been praying for Billy's salvation. Why don't you maybe talk to him? You've been praying that you will find more joy. Maybe we start to learn what the Bible says about where joy is found. Um, there's things that we need to do sometimes. And Hannah acts on her prayer. And in the due, in the, in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from Yahweh. And as the footnote in my Bible tells us, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for heard of God. So Sam, Hannah's saying, I have been heard from God. I'm going to name this kid heard of God, Samuel. So that's pretty cool. So Hannah prays. I find it interesting that Eli assumes in her distress that she's been drinking. Because here's what distress often does to Americans. It drives us to drink. It doesn't usually drive us to pray. And I know I'm talking to a room of a lot of people that don't drink, so maybe it's not drink, but it's something like a drink. Distress drives you to numb your deep anxiety and vexation another way, the bitterness of your spirit. We have so many different ways of coping and numbing pain that's not good for us. And I don't just mean it's unhealthy to eat a tub of ice cream every night because you're depressed. <laughs> like, that's not good for you. But I, I mean more than that. Hannah is willing to admit, she's willing to look within the barrenness, not just of her womb, but of her soul, and recognize there is something that hurts. And I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to name it, and I'm going to address it. I'm going to spar with this thing. I'm going to face off. I'm going to wrestle with it. And I say this, it seems obvious in the story, but I have to say it because our natural inclination as Americans who love prosperity and the good life is to run away from pain. We somehow think that pain is weakness and pain doesn't belong in life, and so it's our goal to eliminate it at all costs. We don't want to talk about it, we don't want to hear it, we don't want to feel it. So when we ask each other, how are you doing, the reason you've never heard anyone say, I am in great anxiety and vexation, and I just was called a drunk because I was praying so bitterly that I looked like a lunatic, the reason we never hear people say that to us, well, one, is because we just honestly aren't that honest about our emotions, but two, if we were to say that to somebody, you would see them very quickly explain that the bathroom is calling them. You would see them get out of your face really quick because we're not comfortable with this language. And there has been a study, um, and you know how studies go, I don't take it with a grain of salt, but that the average person can name about three to five emotions when there's actually about 30. 
But we use the same three to five words to describe how we're feeling. We're not very in touch with how we feel. We're not very in touch with the barrenness of our soul or the condition of our soul. And yet Hannah is not afraid to go there. Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Hannah mourns. And she recognizes the truth of that beatitude as she washes her face, eats, gets up, and is no longer sad. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We hear Jesus say that, and he has to say that because most humans don't agree with that. She was so valiant at the funeral, she didn't shed one tear. She was so strong. Or she was ignorant of how she was feeling. But by weeping, we are letting something go. As one commentator, I thought so poetically put it, said that Hannah turned her bitterness into a liquid offering poured out to Yahweh. Liquid offering. That's good. Turned her bitterness to liquid. And, and, and it's a great wordplay because I maybe you picked it up. The priest is asking, how much wine have you been pouring into your cup? And she's saying, I'm pouring nothing out but my heart, but my soul. That's the only thing being poured out here. And we need to ask ourselves, when we're feeling very uncomfortable emotions and pain and people are poking at those buttons, what are we pouring into our lives Because often that's what we do. We pour something in to kind of cover over it, to make it feel better. But what we see, the biblical, at least the Hannah response here, is that she doesn't pour anything in, she pours it out. So that Yahweh can replace and fill. And that's why Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. There's no comfort for the one who is not willing to open themselves up and say, I need comfort. But Hannah does that. We want the pleasures of heaven, but we don't want the pains of hell. And yet it's been said, for a tree to grow into heaven, its roots must reach into hell. And you consider that. We want all the good feelings, none of the negative ones. But life doesn't actually work that way. Our, we call emotions negative and positive, but they're really all being used for a reason. And in a sense, they're all positive because they're pointing us somewhere. They're trying to tell us something's wrong, something's not right. So use this announcement, use this warning, use this message to deal with it, not ignore it. And so what we like to do is we feel something, and so we want to numb it, we want to turn it off, we want to ignore it. But it's been said, and I think it's been very well said, that you cannot selectively numb your your emotions. We cannot say, oh, I don't like this one, I don't like how this is feeling, I'm going to turn that off. Because what happens is when we turn off the pain in our life, eventually we stop learning how to feel the joy in our life. That's what it means you cannot selectively numb emotions. If I'm going to numb these feelings, I'm actually going to just turn the whole switchboard off. And that's when we get people who are walking through life without any feeling at all. They're like zombies. They're numb. They're walking like they're living dead people because they're not dealing with pain properly. They're just choosing to shut it off, numb it out, cast it out, just ignore it. And we no longer have the capacity to live 
to smile, to laugh, to find humor in situations. Hannah doesn't go there. She says, I will go to the deepest pit of hell within my soul if it means that I will emerge in heaven again. And of course, please don't take me literally. I'm not talking about the places. I'm talking about the conditions within us. Sometimes we have to go into the valley of the shadow of death before we eat at the table which our shepherd has set before us in the face of our enemies. Right? That's how the psalm goes. You're my shepherd. Sometimes you lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, but on the other side, the table is set for me. And so Hannah's willing to go there. She pours out her soul. God hears her. He gives her a child. And now I want us to look at this, the prayer um, she gives in celebration. Um, Samuel's growing up. He's born. He's growing up. She's weaned him. She's now going to leave him at the temple. This is the first time she's coming back because she stayed home to wean him for a few years. She's coming back with Samuel. She shows Eli, hey, remember me, that crazy lady? Yeah, the drunken one. Yeah, this is the kid I was praying for. And they both worship God and say, wow, that's amazing. And so then Hannah prays. Um, some people say she sings this. Either way, it's, it's, it's poetry. She breaks out into artistic expression. And she says this. Now, as we read it, you need to watch. It moves progressively from Hannah's condition to the nation of Israel's condition to the world's condition. All right? It's going to move from her outward. Verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in Yahweh. By the way, you remember how Mary started her song, also known as the Magnificat? My soul magnifies the Lord. That's a total echo of this. My heart exalts in Yahweh. My strength is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none like you, Yahweh. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Yahweh kills and brings to life. He brings down to Shul, the place of the dead, and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor for the pillars of the earth are Yahweh's and on them he has set the world that's fantastic so you've read so far through verse 8 we have read about Hannah You've delivered me from my enemies. You are my strength. Let no one boast in their words. I'm boasting. There's no one like you, God. Then it goes to the nation status, how God's reversing everything. The barren are becoming fruitful. The fruitful are no longer fruitful. He's raising up the poor from the ash heap, right? He's setting them on high. They're going to become princes. This is, of course, looking very soon in the near future that Israel's going to have a king soon. God's raising this tiny country of people who are slaves in Egypt, and he's bringing them to a status where they have a king, and they're going to be a 
kingdom in which other nations come to this kingdom eventually. We'll get to that one in uh, 1 Kings. This is going to be a great kingdom. But now in verse 9, it goes global. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of Yahweh shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. You know what I love about this poem? Is that Hannah is acknowledging a lot of the themes that are going to come in Samuel. One of the things I want you guys to look for as you read in this book is the theme of character versus charisma. We're going to see the first king anointed under charisma. He was a whole head and shoulder above everybody. Then we're going to see another king who is anointed out of character. By the way, it's Saul, the charismatic one, and David, the one of character. And that God is going to, while the world looks to the charismatic to lead us, God is showing us in this book, I look for the ones who have character. And Hannah picks up on that. I think because she's been in a place where she went deep into the barrenness of her soul and wept before God and poured that out and suffered and was not afraid to look deep within in her pain. And in those moments when we're willing to do that, we build character. We come out of that built up by God. We come out of that different. And Hannah is beginning to recognize who God works in and through. Um, and then we see this great theme of reversal, that the high will be brought low, the low will be brought high. Um, so another theme that kind of you're going to see through the kingdom. Um, but then it goes to the ends of the earth, that he will be the judge of the ends of the earth. And here's what I want to point out. Why should we care about our hurts, our emotions, our pain? Why should we, like Hannah, go before God with them and pour them out to him? Doesn't it, and you, sometimes Christians can talk like this, it seems so selfish, all about me and how I feel. and But sometimes we need to deal with that. Because what Hannah's poem here acknowledges is when I dealt with what I was going through, God healed me. And now through that, he's giving me a son who's going to anoint the king who's going to heal the nation. And this nation is then going to declare the name of our God to the ends of the earth. She recognizes that if we want to reach the world, we have to be in the right place. We cannot be people full of pain, bottling up our bitter prayers because we don't think they're proper. Because then what's going to happen is we go around the world with all this bitterness bottled up. And you know what happens when things get bottled up with no oxygen? They ferment. Which is the process of breaking down sugars into other chemicals, like intoxicating stuff sometimes. 
What happens when we bottle up our bitterness and our pain and our hurt is that it begins to ferment. It breaks down our joy into fragments of intoxicating reactions like uh, resentfulness, self-pity, arrogance, revenge, hatefulness, agitation, wanting to get in people's faces, always jealous of somebody else, never applauding other people's accomplishments because why am I not getting that? That's what happens when we don't deal with pain inside. It turns into this ugly brew of fermented bitterness, which comes out incredibly ugly. And Hannah could have become this person. Can you imagine she kept enduring the hostilities of that other wife and uh, the tauntings of my super husband who thinks that I am like 10 sons to you and the priest who think that I am a no good woman who's drunk and who's just not even in love with Yahweh at all. Like, can you imagine if she went carrying this all the time and said, I'm worthless, I'm worthless, I'm worthless and I have no kid and I'm barren and I have nothing to give the world. Well, she'll give the world something. She will birth something. It won't be a prophet declaring the word of God. She'll birth something else. She'll birth something that's hurting people, something that's declaring not the word of God, that's destroying rather than creating. So, as the, as the poem goes from Hannah to the nation to the world, brothers and sisters, we need to pour out our souls at times. Rather than keeping them bottled in, God doesn't want to know that. God doesn't want to hear that. I don't want to know that. I don't want to hear that. We need to let it out. And when we are, we're in the company of Hannah. That should be a good start. We're in the company of King David. How many of his psalms are unutterable? Teach your kid to pray like that. You know, thanks. I'd like to keep babies' heads intact. It's one of his prayers. Well, not David's, it's, but it's a psalm. But, but the psalmists were comfortable with their emotions. And they were totally comfortable airing it out to God. Hey, I really want those enemies who are surrounding me right now. Psalm 3, David, when he was um, being pursued by his enemies. I really want you right now to smash their skulls, grind their teeth to sand, and push their face in the dust to eat it like the serpent was cursed to do. <laughs> Have you prayed that? Yes. You might have thought that. <laughs> and she's getting baptized soon. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's great. But that's an honest prayer. That's awesome. By the way, I say that she's getting baptized. You guys should come to the barbecue and, and see the baptisms. And as Pastor Mike said, you need it. If you want to be baptized, we're going to do it. So, okay. Commercial breakover. This happens when you speak out. Look out. Um, <laughs> Psalms pray things like that. And some people pray that. That's great. Some people don't. They feel like it's sacrilege. But look, your heart is praying it. If you're not uttering a formal before God prayer, you're already thinking it and feeling it. It's better that we're open and honest to God because when we finally open up, when we finally pour out the soul, pour out that intoxication, rather than letting it infect us and influence us, when we pour it out, that's when he can fill us with his spirit. And as Richard's saying, who can make us whole again. That's why the psalmists are so full of things. It's so funny when um, you look at some of the liturgies that you know more high churches do. They have the, their reading schedules and things, and they, they read the psalms. They often skip over a lot of the psalms that have a lot of hatred in them. <laughs> We're not comfortable with that stuff. But we need to become comfortable with what are we feeling, because God is a great person to gossip to. Do you know that? Because you actually can't gossip to God. 
Think about that. God doesn't sin. So telling him your problems and how other people are bugging you, it's he can't gossip. He's a great person to confide in. Now I do that with somebody else. Yeah, I could be borderline just complaining about somebody being a real jerk. But God isn't going to tell anyone. God's going to take that and say, thank you for telling me. He's a good listener. And he will allow us to pour out and to dump and to unload. And then when we're done, he can fill that vacuum. He can move into that barrenness and give us birth of new life and blessing and light. So when we feel things that are uncomfortable, and you may not know what to call it, that's okay. That can come maybe later. Let us practice not filling ourselves up with things that make us feel better for a moment, but let's practice pouring out to God. We quoted the second beatitude just a moment ago. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The first one is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Hannah's poor in spirit, and she admits it. That's what's going on. And you know what she does with that poverty of spirit? The poor in spirit pour it out, right? I almost called this the poor in spirit, but spelled like pouring a drink. But I knew someone would think that's a typo, and so it didn't go that way. But that's the idea. The poor in spirit should empty themselves. That's what it means to be poor in spirit, to be emptied before God so that he can fill. Or another way to look at it is, the poor in spirit are those who let down their defenses so that the kingdom of heaven can invade. Because until we do, we're actually resisting the rule and reign of God in our lives. So, friends, it's okay to be empty so that you can be full. It's okay to have emotions. You're a human being. The psalmist did too. It's okay to pour that out because God can handle it so much better. He's a great hazardous waste remover, by the way. He can take care of that, and he won't charge you fees. He will just give you himself instead.